0: For the last eight years, you've been the leader of the most powerful nation in the world, and time is running short before you must turn the reins over to the newly elected leader. You've served at the highest levels in government, and you've been the supreme commander of an expeditionary force during a world war. You've been present for some of the most important events in your country's history, and have been privy to the nation's most confidential information. But you have a secret. One so potentially devastating to the public that the only thing more troubling than the secret are those who also have this knowledge. These gatekeepers to the secret are amassing power and will do whatever they deem necessary to maintain it. Your imminent departure could leave these gatekeepers unchecked. What would you do? Who do you warn? Who can you warn? The next leader? The nation? and if so, how? This may be exactly what President Eisenhower did when he gave his farewell speech in 1961, days before John F. Kennedy would be sworn in as the 35th U.S. President. This is Conspiracy Season 1, JFK. What Will You Believe? You can find the show notes and research articles on auroraborasink.com. That's O-U-R-O-B-O-R-O-S-I-N-K.com. The 1960 presidential election between John Kennedy and Richard Nixon would turn out to be one of the closest up to that time. Kennedy was a junior senator, yet he managed to secure the Democratic nomination by beating out more senior politicians such as Hubert Humphrey and Lyndon B. Johnson. Nixon was the vice president under Eisenhower for the last eight years, and in the public eye, he was clearly qualified for the presidency. Kennedy would go on to take the election, but only won the popular vote by about 100,000 votes, a low margin of about 0.17%. Before taking the helm as commander-in-chief, Kennedy would meet with Dwight Eisenhower during the transition between administrations. Once, on December 6, 1960, and for a second time on January 19th, 1961. We know that Eisenhower was aware that Kennedy knew elements of the UFO phenomena, and that he had seen firsthand the advanced technologies that were being developed in Germany during World War II. If you remember, they had met in Germany. Kennedy writes about this encounter in his published diary, Prelude to Leadership. We also know about Kennedy's relationship with James Forrestal, and I've suggested in the last two episodes that they had communicated about the UFO topic. I'm also inclined to believe that Kennedy was thoroughly aware of the Majestic 12 Group's existence, especially since Forrestal was a founding member. I have found no documentation to support this claim, but the circumstantial evidence is plain to see. After the death of Forrestal, Kennedy will take a few subtle actions relating to their friendship that have no clear meaning unless things are looked at through the conspiracy JFK case lens. We will delve more into this in future episodes, but until then, ask yourself this. Could have sharing any information about Majestic with Kennedy, or the desire to inform the general public, be the reason for Forrestal's death? As Eisenhower's administration came to an end, all indications for control and oversight of the UFO situation pointed to a move from the White House, to the intelligence community, or more directly, to the CIA and the shadow group Majestic. There is certainly room for an argument to be made that the creation of Majestic 12 and any decision to prioritize the secrecy of any UFO or extraterrestrial information was, is, absolutely necessary. It's my belief that it was essential, and it was the correct move, especially for that time. I will say, I'm more inclined to believe secrecy might not be as necessary nowadays. I don't think any UFO information revealed today would have nearly a dramatic effect on the world as it would have back then. I mean, the Air Force recently released official videos of UFOs and pretty much no one cared. I saw probably one news article on the topic, but saw about 17,000 articles on how the speed of Trump's eye blinks were triggering. I also think that the progression of science has opened a door offering the idea that extraterrestrial life is more likely than not. Even religious leaders around the world have openly discussed a belief in extraterrestrial life, and how this belief isn't antithetical to their religious doctrines. The post-war world of the 1940s was hardly in the position to face a new type of threat, tangible or intangible, especially one with so many unknowns. The U.S. arguably had the most powerful military force on the planet, but it would have to admit it was incapable of stopping any invasive assault by an extraterrestrial enemy. So, if secrecy at that time was the right move, then where did things go wrong? The simple answer, politics. Government is a political entity. Policy flows as the political wind blows. And during that time, the government wasn't really structured for scientific research especially research that is transparent to the public. Scientific innovation historically has come from the private scientific sector, and until World War II, there wasn't much incentive for governmental-controlled scientific research. War would change that. Scientific innovations would be necessary for the defense of the country and to keep our enemies in check. Cold War Soviet Union was a threat, and they of course would be doing everything they could to develop weapons or technology to match any nation, and of course, its number one enemy, the United States. Optimal defense of the nation would now require big money and something just as valuable, secrecy. In the last episode, I made mention of the government's black budget, currently estimated at $53 billion. This money is funneled into intelligence operations and scientific research and development programs. Secrecy is important because you don't want your enemies knowing what development you're working on, hence the intelligence aspect of the black budget programs. But the core problem with covert operations and secrecy has to do with accountability. The decisions being made by these types of programs would ultimately be made by unelected officials. Eisenhower would come to see the harm in this type of setup. The turnover rate of elected officials raised the probability for covert intelligence groups like Majestic to begin conducting business in the shadows, to establish their own agenda. After World War II, the U.S. had a rapid rise of government-funded scientific research facilities. Defense contractors were brought in to work in conjunction with government-run research. Now, let's hypothesize that in this work on nuclear energy, rockets, satellites, advanced aircraft, and so forth, the government comes into possession of extraterrestrial artifacts— These artifacts are turned over to their government labs and various defense contractors for evaluation and, if possible, back-engineered. Let's say that the Aurora Boris Aircraft Company was given some strange lightweight metal that would withstand enormous heat and had fantastic strength. Aurora Boris scientists ran tests for months and finally reported to their superiors that this material most certainly was not something produced on Earth, but they had discovered how to duplicate it. The question is how would these discoveries be handled by corporate executives? Would the person in charge at Aurora Boris Aircraft pick up the phone and call Washington? Or would they tell the subordinates that this is internal classified information and it stays within the company? Of course, this very simplistic scenario brings up many questions, the least of which is whether there would be a violation of federal laws, since Aurora Boris Aircraft was working under contract with the government for this research. But, in the game of multi-billion dollar contracts, rules in many cases don't apply. The great military-industrial complex was being formed. Those in the need to know were moving from the executive branch of government into special interest dark groups deep within the military and industry. And so, the incoming president, John Kennedy, would take office in 1961 with a warning from his predecessor to stop this shift in power
1: and it may have cost him his life. Three days from now, after half a century in the service of our country, I shall lay down the responsibilities of office, as, in traditional and solemn ceremony, the authority of the presidency is vested in my successor. This evening, I come to you with a message of leave-taking and farewell, and to share a few final thoughts with you, my countrymen. We now stand ten years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Three of these involved our own country. Despite these holocausts, America is today the strongest, the most influential, and most productive nation in the world. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. A huge increase in newer elements of our defenses, development of unrealistic programs to cure every ill in agriculture, a dramatic expansion in basic and applied research, these and many other possibilities, each possibly promising in itself, may be suggested as the only way to the road we wish to travel. But each proposal must be weighed in the light of a broader consideration, the need to maintain balance in and among national programs. Balance between the private and the public economy. Balance between the cost and hoped-for advantages. Balance between the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable. Balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual. Balance between actions of the moment and the national welfare of the future. Good judgment seeks balance in progress. Lack of it eventually finds imbalance and frustration. The record of many decades stands as proof that our people and their government have, in the main, understood these truths and have responded to them well in the face of threat and stress. But threats, new in kind or degree, constantly arise. Of these I mention two only. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could with time and, as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, 3.5 million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. We annually spend on military security alone more than the net income of all United States corporations. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development. Yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together.
0: Eisenhower only alluded to the threat in his speech, but surely his meetings with Kennedy were an opportunity for full disclosure. Kennedy now had the information he needed to begin wrangling in the Majestic 12 and curb their growing power. The difference between Kennedy and Eisenhower's battle with the Majestic would be significant, though. Eisenhower was a former five star general, and he was loved by the military. When he threatened to storm Area 51 and S4, The Majestic were forced to take him seriously. Kennedy, on the other hand, was young and at the beginning of his presidency. He was still inexperienced and hadn't developed the support needed to face an organization like the Majestic. I have often wondered how things might have been different if Forrestal had survived. Support from Forrestal would certainly have helped, maybe even given Kennedy the upper hand. If Forrestal had known JFK would one day become president, I think he would have been tight-lipped with his disagreements in the Majestic group. I believe he would have worked to undermine Majestic from the inside, knowing he had the power of the presidency behind him. Sadly, we will never know. Within the first month of his presidency, Kennedy started to make his move and his first strike, restructuring the National Security Council. On February 19, 1961, he issues Executive Order 10920, By virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and statutes, and as President of the United States, it is ordered that Executive Order Number 10700 of February 25, 1957, entitled Further Providing for the Operations Coordinating Board, as amended be, and is hereby revoked. This order abolished the Operations Coordinating Board. The Operations Coordinating Board was the primary interagency organization responsible for Cold War psychological warfare activities, and reported to the National Security Council. The responsibilities of the now-abolished Operations Coordinating Board were handed over to Kennedy's National Security Advisor, McGeorge Bundy, and the State Department. What is the importance of psychological warfare? Why is it important to the Majestic 12? Why would Kennedy want to move control of Psy Warfare operations back under the President? We find the answer in two documents. The first was a group of three top-secret memos from the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 1952 titled, Joint Logistic Plan for Majestic. Declassified in 1976, they state, The following plans in support of Majestic are now under preparation. A psychological warfare plan, an unconventional warfare plan, cover and deception plans, a civil affairs slash military government plan, a command plan, a logistic plan, transportation guidance to be included in the logistic plan, a map and chart plan, and a communications plan. These memos show that Majestic was underway, and as expected, plans were implemented to support an event involving UFOs and extraterrestrial life. Dr. Robert Wood and his son Ryan Wood, who have spent years verifying the Majestic documents and researching government documents, say this about the memo. Given the worldwide nature of UFOs and their priceless value if recovered, It is imperative that the Joint Chief of Staff would have a logistic plan to recover crash saucers and pack them back to the U.S. This report by the Joint Logistics Plans Committee, although primarily a war plan, is clearly capable of supporting crash retrieval operations for UFOs. The second document is titled Majestic 12 Project First Annual Report. Item 5 in this document states this. Majestic ss are currently focused on PSYOP development for Cold War counterintelligence activities. The full document gives a clear understanding that the important activities to the Majestic 12 include covert operations, spy warfare, and counterintelligence. These two documents help to understand why Kennedy might have wanted to bring PSY Cold War operations under his control and oversight. While Kennedy's executive order might appear to be a subtle administration change decision, it is in reality a direct challenge to the authority of the Majestic 12. On June 28, 1961, Kennedy sent a memo to Alan Doles. Doles was the current director of the CIA. The memo was short and to the point. This is what it said. Subject, review of MJ-12 intelligence operations as they relate to Cold War psychological warfare plans. I would like a brief summary from you at your earliest convenience. Signed, John Kennedy. This memo was supported by a declassified set of three National Security Action Memorandums, or NSAMs, issued on the same day to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and also forwarded to Dulles. NSAM 55-57 through placed Cold War operations firmly under the control of the Joint Chiefs. According to Colonel Fletcher Prouty, these memos were Kennedy's main means of gaining control over covert CIA operations. Proudy wrote, Shortly after the Bay of Pigs Committee had completed its hearings, the White House issued three NSAM of the most unusual and revolutionary nature. They prescribed vastly eliminating stipulations upon the conduct of clandestine operations. NSAM 55 was addressed to the chairman of the GCS, and its principal theme was to instruct the chairman that the President of the United States held him responsible for all military-type operations in peacetime, as he would be responsible for them in times of war. There was no misunderstanding the full intent and weight of this document. Peacetime operations, as used in that context, were always clandestine operations. This NSAM therefore put into the Chairman's hands the authority to demand full and comprehensive briefings, and an inside role during the development of any clandestine operation in which the U.S. government might become involved. The three June 28 NSAMs support the content of the CIA memorandum that was issued the same day and involved Cold War operations by MJ-12. As I will show later through a leaked and partially burned document, the three NSAMs explained why the Joint Chiefs were excluded from the most classified UFO information by MJ-12. These three Joint Chiefs of Staff memos help confirm the close relationship between Majestic 12 operations and psychological warfare. Kennedy therefore had good reason to issue his June 28 memo to Doles asking him for review of MJ 12 psychological warfare operations. Doles would respond a few months later, on November 5th, with a one page response. We gained three big insights from the document. One, the memo claims that UFOs are part of a Soviet propaganda campaign designed to spread distrust of the government. Two, there is acknowledgement of the possibility that some UFO cases are of non-terrestrial origin, but they do not constitute a physical threat to national defense. Three, and as a final statement, Doles writes, for reasons of security, I cannot divulge pertinent data on some of the more sensitive aspects of MJ-12 activities. This is clearly a limited response. I believe it also shows there was a power struggle that was occurring behind the scenes. And the proof... By the end of the month, Doles had resigned as director of the CIA. We get a glimpse into the power struggle from the personal papers of James Angleton. Angleton was the CIA chief of counterintelligence from 1954 to 1974 and worked under six CIA directors. He was placed as the chief of counterintelligence by Alan Doles and by all accounts, the two were close. It also has been alleged that Angleton was deeply involved with providing security for the MJ-12 group. In 1974, Angleton was forced to retire by the new CIA director, William Colby, and according to Cord Meyer in his book, Facing Reality, on December 17, Colby informs Angleton that he is relieving him of his two principal duties, his function as chief of the counterintelligence staff and his responsibility for liaison with Israeli intelligence. He gives Angleton the option of remaining in the agency in a consultant capacity or of retiring before the end of the year. Christmas that year, the CIA announces retirement. This would prompt his successors to destroy his vast collection of files. In the book, The Secret War Between the FBI and the CIA by Mark Riebling, he writes how Angleton's files were so sensitive, his successors had actually burned 99% of his files stating that due to the content of the files, it was simply better to just burn them from existence. And after Angleton's death, his private collection would meet the same fate. The author Whitley Strieber learned that James Angleton was deeply involved in collecting and controlling access to UFO files. Streber concluded he had a good idea of key events and players, but he couldn't prove it. Streber would write a fictionalized version of Roswell, and to explain why this is what he said. In the end, I found myself with much more knowledge of the Roswell incident than I could prove. Among other things, I had formed the impression that a central intelligence officer, James Angleton, had been involved in an investigation of the incident in the late 1940s, but I was very far from being able to prove that or even to suggest it in a non-fiction context. After Angleton's death in 1987, it's plausible the CIA believed Angleton possessed a collection of sensitive UFO files that needed to be confidentially destroyed. But one CIA agent involved with destroying the files didn't agree. This agent, one of Angleton's counterintelligence colleagues, alleges to have been present during the burning of Angleton's files and took action to save some of the collection. He mailed some of these saved files to Timothy Cooper, a UFO researcher best known for his role in making public the leaked MJ-12 documents. What the agent sent to Cooper on June 23, 1999, was a partially burned memo. Along with the memo, the agent wrote a cover letter that reads, I'm a retired CIA counterintelligence officer who worked for Jim Angleton from, redacted, secret files, redacted, sensitive files that would connect MJ-12 to JFK's murder. This document did not exist officially and has never been disclosed within the agency. Alan Dole's was very fearful of disclosure to unauthorized channels and leaks in the White House. I literally snatched the directives from the fire and have kept them safe from review. To allow a review would compromise future directors and put the agency in a difficult position. According to Dr. Robert Wood, the burned document is an original carbon with an equal watermark characteristic of government work. But so far, forensic laboratories have been unable to trace it. Although no date is given... Its content directly suggests the month of September. The classified top-secret document with MJ-12 Access Codeword is a set of directives from the Director of the CIA, who simultaneously headed the MJ-12 Special Studies Project and sent it out to six other members of the project. They are identified on the cover page as MJ-2, MJ-3, MJ-4, MJ-5, MJ-6, and MJ-7. It reads, As you know, Lancer, which was Kennedy's Secret Service code name, has made some inquiries regarding our activities which we cannot allow. Please submit your views no later than October. Your action to this matter is critical to the continuance of the group. The document clearly acknowledges that the continued existence of Majestic was threatened by Kennedy's efforts to gain access to information about the Majestic operations. The burned document appeared to be a draft for a series of MJ 12 directives from Alan Doles, who knew his time as director of the CIA was coming to an end due to the April 1961 Bay of Pigs fiasco. He needed an answer from the other MJ 12 members by October, a month before he was to resign on November 29th. The burned document contained a number of directives concerning how to control UFO information and ensure that it would not be shared with the chief executive. National Security Council staff, department heads, the Joint Chiefs, and foreign representatives. Dole's secret directives forbid Kennedy's national security team from gaining access to the most sensitive UFO files that were possessed by the CIA and MJ-12. Like Eisenhower before him, Kennedy's administration would be denied information on majestic operations. The last directive, prepared by Dole's and apparently approved by six other MJ-12 members, Is titled, Project Environment. It states, Draft, Directive Regarding Project Environment. When conditions become non-conducive for growth in our environment and Washington cannot be influenced any further, the weather is lacking any precipitation. It should be wet. It should be wet originates from Russia, where the phrase wet works or wet affairs denotes someone who has been killed and is drenched with blood. Alan Doles was seeking approval from six of his MJ 12 colleagues to warrant the assassination of any elected or appointed official in Washington, D.C., whose policies were non conducive for growth. This is definitely an obscure assassination directive. Next time on Conspiracy Kennedy circumvents the CIA and the Majestic 12 to learn about UFOs. He recruits the Attorney General to his cause, who happens to be Robert Kennedy his brother, and Marilyn Monroe's relationship to Kennedy leads to her death.